Welcome to the Stockout. This is your show about all things related to CPG and retail industries. I'm Mike Bowdendistel, joined by Grace Sharkey. And today we're going to be talking about some pressures on the consumer. Seems like that's um, a regular topic. Uh, we're talking about some environmental issues, including uh, the CPG's company's push to reduce water and, and wastewater uh, in their supply chains. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the freight market uh, like we uh, typically do. Um, but before we do that, if anyone has not already signed up for the Stockout newsletter and would like to be, you can do that by going to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout or go to freightwaves.com up at the top. Under newsletters, is going to be the first one under supply chains and uh, be in your inbox every Wednesday or Thursday, typically, um, talking about uh, just kind of whatever I think is interesting. And the CPG world always throw in there sort of some sonar charts uh, to give you a little bit of, of what's happening in the um, in the freight world and link to the articles that I think were the most important if I was a CPG or retail shipper. Um, but today, uh, Grace, you found some articles that were interesting related to the CPG companies. Sort of one of the pressures they're under is, is all these environmental issues. Um, so what can you tell us about their push to reduce water consumption? Yeah, well, to kind of give an overview of exactly the problem that we're, we're going to be touching on, which is water neutrality. So uh, what that means definition-wise is that you are looking for ways to reduce the amount of water that you're currently using in your operations while also encouraging positive actions towards the various communities to basically leave what you have taken. So it's a kind of a broad topic or broad subject, which when we get into a lot of these sustainability issues they tend to be but i think i think we'll see a change to that here in a second but to, to dive into it for people last week i believe i believe it was last week maybe the beginning of, of the week pepsico had come out saying that they were looking to uh hit net water positive by 2030 which really is kind of this uh n neutrality aspect that uh we're just kind of going over and uh again that would in this situation, they're looking to actually help improve uh, and give back more water than they're actually using today. And uh, clearly in the beverage side of things, when you look at pop and uh, juices, things of that nature, pop alone, uh, cola in particular uses about 90% water to make. So uh, they're clearly using it. But once you get into snacks and uh, different food items as well, and you get into other food and beverage companies out there too, uh, you start to see a lot more water being used among their suppliers in order to, of course, achieve the, uh, the goal that they have with snacks in particular. To kind of give like a overview of like what this kind of like uh, these areas or different supplies might look like. For example, I was <laughs> looking this up earlier. Cheese actually uses two hundred and sorry two thousand five hundred liters of water for just one uh, for five hundred grams uh, of cheese. So uh, imagine, yeah, <laughs> isn't that insane? I saw that. I was like. Well, I love cheese, but maybe one day I won't have cheese. Uh, so to kind of give you a view, this is what Pepsi is, is really aimed at. And so they're working with their local uh, community suppliers to really start gaining efficiencies on their water usage. I think that's the big part is how are we internally using water in our operations? How can we bring that down? They've done a really great job in other countries so far. In India, There's uh, uh, they use 
mostly uh, water vapor. They reuse water vapor uh, to cut down on their complete water draws. And then in Brazil, or sorry, in Mexico, they've cut water demand by 70% uh, over the last two years. And they're working on the same goal at their Brazil facilities too. So uh, since 2015, they've increased water use efficiency by 22%. Uh, but there's still a long, long way for them to go. So uh, I think it's it's interesting to see not only, of course, Pepsi taking this stance, but there's a lot of food uh, beverage companies that are out there doing the same. Yeah, you hear a lot about this with coffee, too. I mean, that's um, one that sort of hits home for me is just how water intensive coffee manufacturing is when you think about the entire supply chain. And one interesting stat I saw was that from farm to cup, each cup of coffee requires the equivalent of a 16-minute shower to produce. Wow. And I don't know anyone drinks one cup of coffee. You might drink you know, 10 or 20. <laughs> uh, so, so you put that in sort of perspective, it's like, well, that's, that's really the, the biggest, maybe the biggest use of water. I mean, your, your cheese example was interesting too. And then you also, um, you know, touch on all these other things in, in there about, you know, issues with deforestation and... Mm-hmm really so, so many just different parts of the supply chain that there's just lots of different, you know, crops that, you know, at various parts of the supply chain can can cause all sorts of issues in, in a lot of these developing countries as well. And, you know, so many of these crops are grown in countries that are, are poor and, you know, you, you try to want to protect the water and make sure there's enough water for the local, um, you know, e- economies there. I mean, one question I have is, you know, I know for like for carbon, when companies say they want to be carbon neutral, usually they're 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 buying some credits, which I guess the credits go towards planting, you know, trees to offset what they're using and or what they're emitting on the carbon side. Is does does water work similar to that when they say they're net water positive? I think they're gonna to have to do a lot more work to showcase the water aspect of things. I mean, personally, I still have a thousand questions when it comes to the the carbon equivalents uh, with a lot of those credits as well. And I think most industries do. The water side, I think, is gonna you're gonna see a lot more action behind it. So to kind of give you an idea of like how this would work, uh, and this is for any industry looking to work on their water neutrality. Uh, the first step, of course, is just reducing overall water usage, right? Like kind of the water vapor aspect. What can you reuse within your operations currently, and and what can you how can you avoid drawing that water out? And I mean, you you touched on it perfectly. We're talking about a lot of um, uh, countries countries that in particular <laughs> don't have the water infrastructure that we are so graciously given here in the U.S. So um, for someone like, they're talking about India, right, being able to just reuse their water vapor and would take out their withdrawals. I mean, uh, that, that society alone, <clears throat> the, there's communities that need that draw more than um, Pepsi does at, at the end of the day. So that's the first big step is, is focusing on that. <clears throat> and then two, reusing and recycling, right? So just like the water vapor aspect, not just avoiding the draw, but how can we make sure that, uh, I mean, I think you'll see this in farming and a lot of those parts of these supply chains um, uh, avoiding those issues. <clears throat> Last is, and this is where I think when we talk about carbon emissions, this is where the credits come into play. Uh, but this is, I think, more actionable that companies can work on with, especially the different tiers of suppliers they have, is that offsetting the water. So 
like uh, you taught, you touched on it perfectly. One big thing Pepsi is doing right now is helping uh, communities in Africa with their sanitation solutions. So in that case, right, you're taking, and what they're doing is they're like basically building these really, I would say nice, like nicer than I've seen at any concerts or anything like that, um, like porter potties and things of that nature so that people aren't, um, that human waste isn't getting into the water sources, right? So that's kind of like that offsetting aspect. Uh, of course, lowering your greenhouse gases will help with that. Uh, preventing water pollutants in certain areas. So making sure that the water that maybe isn't usable, uh, the fresh water that's not usable today could be usable tomorrow. Uh, deforestation is another one. Um, what was the, uh, the other one? Oh, uh, livestock grazing or also like uh, the fisheries that uh, use all the water to like uh, farm, I guess you could say fish. Uh, d avoiding those types of operations or limiting those as well can offset. So I think you're, like I said, <clears throat> Pepsi actually has, if you go to their Pepsi Foundation website, they have a six part series right now uh, where they showcase uh, a number of like those sanitation solutions and more of these offsetting uh, give backs that they're doing throughout the world. And that I think we're gonna see more action compared to just like if you have a private plane buying carbon credits and, and calling it a day. Yeah, I think all those things are important. There were also some really interesting comments I saw from the Unilever uh, new CEO. And, you know, he was talking about how the sort of these, quote, aspirational climate commitments had failed to deliver the shareholder value. So, you know, not necessarily taking those away, but saying that these long-term goals don't really have the impact. Like you say, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2035 or something. Well, that's great. It doesn't spur everyone into action next week right so yeah. um you know he wants to have this more you know short-term goals that deliver more tangible results you throw out a really long-term you know date like that people say well i'm gonna be some people say i'm gonna be retired by then or i'll be you know working someplace else by then so i don't really have to do anything so i thought that was interesting um and then another part of that comment was he wants to empower the division leaders to you know, for how they can take carbon out of their own supply chains, which maybe that's a better approach than a company in the C-suite saying, I think we should take 50% of the carbon out of our supply chain. Well, you know, it's the, the people in the divisions who have some, you know, idea of how much they can take out of their individual product line. So I think a lot of these things should maybe be bottoms up rather than, than top down. Yeah, I, I think next year and even into like 2025 i'm really interested in some of like the technology that starts to come out maybe even an investment in this space that um allows people to like really capture these numbers too and like authenticate it like truly authenticate these numbers because i think there's just so many questions out there of like i it, do i buy these credits and are they actually like what does that mean like what is that where's that actually going right and even even down to some of the initiatives where it's like planting trees and stuff like that. Like I think people are going to want the actual truth and the numbers behind that. Um, Cause I think that you're, you're hundred percent right. Even I mean, I've worked for a long time for clean water action and Sierra club. Like there's times where, you know, you want to really dive deep into these studies and, and see what that true outcome is. And I think um, I get excited over the next couple of years because you're right. A lot of these timelines, are very, some of them are long, but like some of the 2031s, like that's not that far away. 
and asking some of these suppliers and like farmers in particular to like change the ways that they're doing things in order to to truly showcase the real value of it like that's going to take a lot of time and so i think sometimes i see 2030 i'm like well that's forever but then <laughs> again the pandemic was almost three years ago now and it still doesn't feel like that so uh, we'll, we'll see exactly but i think there needs to be a really more a lot of things needs to be more defined and, and captured better so that people can actually see the true outcome of it yeah, it really needs to be audited. Otherwise, the companies that are claiming that they're green are just going to get charged with greenwashing. Um, I'll move on to the next topic, um, which I think is an interesting one, is consumers seem to be more and more focused on, on ultra-processed foods. And there's been, a, there's been a steady stream of articles in trade rags. I think they've sort of gravitated from the trade rags to mainstream press. Last last week, there was a Wall Street Journal article. It's basically a how-to guide to... You know, see if the food you're eating is ultra processed because lots of foods are either ultra processed and there's a version of it that's not ultra processed. It's hard to tell without looking at the the, the list of ingredients. Um, still not always clear, but basically, you know, it's it's like these difficult to pronounce uh, ingredients <laughs> are the ones that are generally related to ultra processed foods, and they've increased in the amount of, of calories that you know, average person's consuming. It was about 54% in 2001. Now it's 57 or 57% in, in 2018, particularly high in the developed worlds, um, rising in other parts of the globe that are more developing. And sort of the case against these ultra processed foods is that it's not really food. It's this industrial substance that is edible it's related to a lot of medical issues and not just cosmetic issues like gaining weight. I mean, it's things like depression, contribute to cancer, contribute to gastrointestinal things. I mean, all these things that just really could reduce your quality of, of life um, and, and reduce your longevity. And uh, let's say, you know, eating ultra processed foods, some studies say it, it causes eating another 500, 600 calories a day. Um, so the equivalent of running you know, four or five miles a day. And the, industry, the food industry says, well, you know, these definitions don't make sense, that they're not clearly defined, kind of like that last topic, that there's not really a clear definition of what's ultra-processed, what's not ultra-processed. They say that, that you know, these type of foods, um, there's a lot of benefits to them because they're, they're convenient, uh, they're affordable, you know, it, but, but it really this sort of goes right to a lot of what the CPG industry is, is these packaged foods that we all sort of eat to some extent. And, you know, a lot of them, I think people know what is healthy for them, what's not healthy for them. But it's, if there's a big, you know, push to, you know, go away from them, I mean, it, it could be, I think, a risk to, to the industry. What, what do you think? You know, I go back and forth because I think the nutritional value is clearly not there. Um, you see this in like food desert areas where families, you know, are buying most of their meals at uh, dollar stores or convenience stores, right? And that's where a lot of those type of foods are are located. And clearly, the nutrition value isn't seen in those groups as as others that are where grocery stores are and can get fresh food. I also like wonder sometimes. Um, <clears throat> the other side of it which is i think a lot of this processed food in particular helps against waste right like how long these products can sit on a shelf and actually be attainable like a lot of times i think i mean I, I always joke about it right like you go and you buy like spinach or like a bunch of fresh fruit and vegetables and you're like i'm gonna eat so healthy and then 
you like don't eat anywhere near as much of it and then you end up throwing out half of uh the spinach or lettuce like halfway through the week right and so I, I kind of, I, I would love like more data behind it, right? Like kind of showcasing the nutrition value, right? Uh, which again, could also be improved with just better stores in, in some neighborhoods and areas. Uh, but a big part of it, I think, again, is is how long do we want this stuff to sit on our shelves? How frequently do we want to be going to the grocery store? And at some point, are we just going kind of back to like our neighborhood, like uh, farmer's market, like situation where I mean, that's going to be an insane competitor to a lot of these uh, uh, processors. So um, I'm not going to sip uh, the, I, I eat these processed foods all the time. I know it's definitely not been great for my health when it comes to trans fat and sugar intake and salt intake alone. Uh, that's why it's nice that a lot of them do offer kind of like these low fat or non fat or, you know, diet Cokes and all this stuff. Right. Um, but the other side of me that I kind of wag my finger at those who are really against these foods is, you know, there's a lot of families that <laughs> this is the only, this is the only thing they have available and the amount of waste that we would have without them would be, I think, insane. Um, so, and talk about the water usage right now, we're like going back into that conversation as well. So I go back and forth. I, I agree with you though. I think it needs a little bit more data behind it to showcase all these different areas that it does maybe hurt, but also improves. Yeah, it does seem like there's, you know, it's 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 a balance. I don't think anyone avoids them completely. Um, and I yeah. do think some processed foods are worse than than others, which is one of the the, the arguments that the the food industry is making. Um, but yeah, it also could be a situation where the people who are trying to, you know, actively trying to avoid ultra processed foods are already avoiding them, and they have the the resources to do so. You know, buying the healthy food generally a lot more expensive, and so as far as a risk going forward, maybe it's not the risk that, um, you know, it might appear on the surface. Well, I want to move on. Uh, I want to highlight a, an article I thought was a good one over the weekend. Um, Zach Strickland's chart of the week article, uh, which he writes, you know, most Saturdays publishes a chart of the week article, always worth reading. This one, um, is on tender lead times, which is, is often a measure of how tight or loose the capacity is from the pr perspective of, the shipper. Um, but what's interesting is maybe counterintuitively is the tender lead times up 15% since 2019. It's not a measurement that has reverted back to 2019 levels. Um, like you maybe thought it, it would have, he goes through a couple of uh, statistics there. You see in the, the white line is 2023 and you see how that's, that's been above the, the prior years, 2022 in, in, in green, you know, 2021 in, in, in orange, et cetera. And, uh, you know, you look at, look at the tender lead times in, in 2019, the national lead times about 2.6 days. Now it's just under three days. So, 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 so it's increased. Usually you would, you would think of if shippers concerned about secu securing capacity, they would push out those, those lead times. You know, now you think they would not be concerned about the, you know, sourcing capacity. You think that those would, would, would come down, um, but it doesn't seem to be the case there. And you just have to wonder whether, it's some CPG, you know, companies or retailers that, you know, had such issues with supply chains during the pandemic. I mean, a lot of the CPG companies during the pandemic said they've never experienced supply chain issues like that before and have made pushes to make their supply chains more resilient. And maybe this is one method of, of, of doing that, giving their carriers more heads up in terms of when they're going to need that 
capacity, but interested to hear your thoughts too, because you were on the front lines of this in the, in the, in the brokerage industry. Um, you know, how would you interpret uh, that data? I honestly think this is a data that's a long time coming. Uh, I almost would even make a bet. I think it would have taken a little bit longer, but I, I would have made a bet that this would have happened even regardless of the pandemic, because I personally think this is showcasing how smart the industry has gotten uh, and how maybe it's using a lot of its tools and the data behind it in order to make better decisions about its supply chain. One of the best things that you could do as a broker is to convince your shipper to let you know as soon as possible when something was going out. I mean, if I could even get a week of lead time, right? That gives me seven days to find the perfect carrier which when we say perfect carrier and brokerage, we mean the perfect rate uh, to, to move something like that. And uh, if you have seven days lead time now, I mean, imagine having partials too, like you, there's so many different options that you're going to be able to choose from uh, in order to uh, link that up and really bring some of that savings to the shipper at the end of the day. And I think for so long, there was no true data to showcase that to shippers. Uh, it was just kind of something that brokers would tell them. And I'm sure at some level felt like a sales pitch in a way. But as a broker, if you could convince someone, hey, don't shop this out until the day before and then give it to someone because that's how issues occur. Let us plan this. Let us actually take time to figure out where our carrier network's going to be, where this could land perfectly within that week of what a carrier is doing. And that's how we actually bring true savings to them. So I think maybe the pandemic ex ex expedited it. But to me, this almost feels like um, like a, a late adopter syndrome, right? Like where now everyone is starting to actually utilize the tools like sonar and like uh, any, I don't even want to say even pricing tools, but just like planning tools and procurement tools and utilizing their brokers who have better tools like Parade and, and different carrier network um, uh, solutions that really allow them to take advantage of those extra days of, of lead time. So uh, again, it's, I'm, I'm not surprised by it. And this goes back to logistics providers. I think this is kind of the extra value that they are giving shippers. That extra lead time, I guarantee, is probably leading to better rates too. Good advice. Give your brokers yeah. more heads up. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to move on to the next story. I thought it was interesting. There was a CNBC article this morning that um, you know showed more Americans borrowing from their 401k. Now we've seen so many um, examples of you know sort of evidence that Americans are under distress. I mean, you see this with you know the, the record credit card balances that are over a trillion dollars. You see this with increasing auto delinquencies. This one maybe is I put in a little bit of a different category because I think some people that have, you know, large credit card balances, they were never good with money. They were never really disciplined enough to save. They, they never really understood fully that that gets you into financial trouble. But I don't feel that way with 401k savers who are now having to take a loan. Um, if you want to call it a loan, it's basically borrowing money from their, their selves, borrowing money from their future selves. But uh, some interesting stats here that now um, you know, Empower, which used to be Prudential, um, you know, two point six percent of their um, you know customers uh, taking taking loans up from two point three percent, and then Fidelity, which is a uh, you know, bigger sample size, two point eight percent of savers. That's up from two point four percent this time last year. And then uh, they say you know Fidelity says seventeen point six percent have an outstanding loan on their four hundred one k versus seventeen point two percent in the in the second 
quarter and 16.8% a year ago. And then this uh, a group, the uh, sponsor, Council of, of America, said that the average loan increased to $15,000 versus ten dollars to $11,000. So I thought that was an interesting one as far as showing that the pressure on the consumer is not just um, limited to, I think, the lower income people. I think it's 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 also includes people that you know generally you know have been making enough money to to, to put money away, kind of no longer um, having to, to being being able to do that. Um, I want to ask you, Grace. Um, you are um, hosting a show. Is it a show? Um, you know, webinar presented webinar. by Black Freight on how enterprise companies are using AI to drive costs within their truckload program. Sounds like an interesting one. What are you hoping to to get out of this um, session? Well, you know what's it's funny is like the question you just asked me earlier too about the whole uh, um, lead times is like kind of right here in this segment. Uh, when you think about flock freight, a big part of what they're trying to do, right, is to pair uh, to to help shippers pair up a lot of these partials in order to uh, bring some real cost savings. So that is something we'll likely touch on, right? Is using uh, AI and, and a lot of the tools that they have in house, right, to of course uh, bring some of those costs down. We're going to be talking about a lot of different areas so even outside of what just flock freight is doing on a daily basis uh we're going to be talking about i think a, a lot of the procurement systems and how uh, shippers and, and logistics providers as well can have a better idea of what their networks look like and benchmark that compared to others uh there's a lot of cool areas we get into and in regards to 2024 predictions uh but we're also it's interesting especially the article that came out today uh we're likely going to be discussing not not what happened with convoy but just the, how those tools can work uh if if applied appropriately so uh a lot of conversation around ai but even more so just uh even machine learning tools and some of the more simpler ai uh formulas you could say or or, or solutions that uh we'll see maybe executed a little bit more into the ne uh next year sounds great well everyone should go sign up for that newsletter sign up for that webinar and uh, we'll see what their 2024 predictions are here more and more folks I think um, expecting another year of, of weak uh, freight market uh, sort of depressed freight rates but we'll see if they they share that uh, yeah. view but that hope everyone <laughs>